I'm Verlin, and I have the opportunity of sharing with you during these few weeks in, in worship. We've been uh, in the middle of a series entitled, Jesus Changes Everything. And uh, we used the first chapter of the book of John as the foundational passage for this series. It's the story, it's John's recollection, it's his story of the incarnation, divinity becoming flesh. And the first week, last week, we talked about how Jesus changes all of history. Today, we begin to look at the subject of how Jesus changed religion, and specifically how Jesus changed religious concepts of authority and power. So pray with me, will you, that God will show us his authority and power today. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Jesus becoming flesh and living among us. And we're grateful for the truths of your word. And we thank you for your teaching. And we ask that you teach us today and that we might be willing to respond to your Holy Spirit at work in our lives, that we might be those who respond to your authority and your power. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a dark night. They had been out to sea for quite a while. Fog lay heavy. The captain was out on the deck and he could see in the distance a faint light. And so these were the days before modern equipment and modern uh, technology. And so he called to his signal man and said, send a signal, alter your course 10 degrees south. So the signal man did exactly as he was asked to do. And soon the message came back, alter your course 10 degrees north. Well, the captain was upset and he said, send a signal. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm a captain. The message came back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm a third class seaman, Jones. Well, now the captain is completely incensed. He sends, send the signal. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm a battleship. The signal came back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. 
I'm a lighthouse. <laughs> you see, we might think we have authority, but we might not have the power to back it up. That's what we want to talk about today. Jesus changes the religious concepts of authority and power. Well, what is authority anyway? Well, the dictionary says it is the ability to influence or to command thoughts or opinions or behavior. It's the right to rule or the right or privilege to act in a certain way. Now, we bump into issues of authority every day. Every time I pull out my cell phone, I have to put my fingerprint in in order for me to have authority to operate my phone. We even do it in the church office. You got to have a certain code to be able to get back into the office area. We run into issues of authority every day. Early in my ministry, I was a campus minister and BSU director at East Central State University in Ada, Oklahoma. Now, the BSU at Ada is a very active, vibrant, good-sized organization, in fact, one of the largest in Oklahoma. And um, we were well into the year, and... Uh, we had Vesper services on Thursday night, Thursday evening, in the BSU chapel. And uh, we had excellent attendance. Vesper services were always planned and run by the students themselves. And lots of times we had a full house. And on this particular occasion, it was full. In fact, there were people standing around the outside edges, and I was one of those standing in the back. And by this time in the year, I had gotten to know most of the students. But there was a young man sitting towards the back that I had never seen before. And uh, the student who was leading the Vesper service, in fact, made reference to a passage of Scripture that we looked at in the very first first sermon in this series. John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the young man at the back wasn't disrespectful and he wasn't loud or anything else, but I was rather close to him. And he kind of said in an audible voice, that's absurd. And at first, well, I was kind of offended by that. In fact, I had made up my mind at the time I, I wanted to talk to him afterwards. But, oh, afterwards, all kinds of things happened. Students wanted to talk, and I lost track. And I never saw the young man again in my life. Little was I to know that it was that exact idea that would give rise to most of my last 15 years of ministry at Missouri Baptist Convention. 
In fact, we referred to it last Sunday from J. Warner Wallace's book, Person of Interest. Why does the Bible still matter in a, uh, why does Jesus still matter in a world that rejects the Bible? In fact, one of, uh, one of the first books that began to have an impression upon me was a book entitled Unchurched Harry and Mary. You see, the world in which we live doesn't give us the authority of God's word. So how are we going to communicate the gospel in a world that rejects the Bible? The book of Hebrews, I mentioned to you last week and the week before that the book of Hebrews would serve as a good foundation for us to understand the whole issue of how the Jewish people understood their own history and how Jesus fit into that history. And in fact, today, let's look at Hebrews, the 12th chapter, beginning with verse 18. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and to that that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no one, no further word be spoken to them because they could not hear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Did you catch that? To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. In fact, the writer of Hebrews is taking them back to the old covenant, to Mount Sinai, to the old covenant that God made with his people. And he was saying to them, there was an old covenant. There was a relationship between God and his people. But it is the incarnation that has changed all of that. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. So what I want us to do today in thinking of this whole issue of authority and power I want us to look at some of those examples from the life and teachings of Jesus that give us profound insight into what Jesus was trying to teach us 
about this new covenant. In the second chapter of John, I've already said we're using the first chapter as the foundation. In the second chapter of John, beginning with verse 13, we have this story of Jesus in the temple. Now, John chooses to give this experience very early in Jesus' ministry. Matthew chooses to tell us basically the same story, but late in Jesus' ministry. Now, whether it's early or late, I don't know and I don't really care. The truth is, Jesus went to the temple. The truth is, it was Passover time. The truth is that Jews came to Jerusalem, literally, we are told, by the millions. Well, at least a million Jews gathered at Passover time in Jerusalem. And they went to the temple to offer sacrifices. And so here we have Jesus going to the temple where the sacrifices would be made. And we have this experience. When it was also almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Now most of the time when we get when we hear this story about Jesus in the temple and we usually call it the cleansing of the temple, you know, we get caught up in the actions of it. We're, we're no different than the news media today. They are always, they get caught up in the actions of it. And, uh, and in this case, Jesus does something that's very, almost out of character. He gets out a whip and starts driving them out. And we get caught up in that. I like to think of this experience more as a, uh, well, as a teaching illustration in other places, we hear where Jesus went into the temple courts and he began to teach. In fact, we're going to look at one of those passages out of Matthew just a little bit later. He went to the temple, as he had done throughout his ministry, to teach. And I think he was teaching about this new covenant. Now think about it for a moment. He is giving, he is saying... The temple is a place of worship. That's a part of the old covenant. It is a place of worship. And you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. But then I want you to notice what Jesus does here. He answered those who said to him by what authority? Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Oh, hey, that's the new covenant. 
destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He's talking about his body. He's not talking about the temple. He's talking about the new covenant. Paul is to tell us in 1 Corinthians, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the new covenant. And Jesus is, I think, saying to them, look, the temple was a place of worship, yes, but I represent a new covenant. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. My body is the temple. And you will tear it down, you'll crucify it, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. I don't know about you, but that's powerful stuff. Or let's talk about the Sea of Galilee for a moment. We're in Luke 8, chapter, chapter 8, verses 22, beginning with verse 22. Now, I'm told that the Sea of Galilee experiences rapid weather changes. Now, you know, when we moved to Missouri after having lived out on the plains, growing up out on the plains, moved to Missouri, and I always heard Missourians say, well, you know, Missouri weather changes rapidly and all that. No, it doesn't change rapidly here like it does in the plains. And I remember an experience about 20-some years ago. We had, I believe they were about 8- and 10-year-old grandsons, and we decided to drive up to Mount Evans in the mountains. And um, they wouldn't even let us go all the way to the summit. But if you've ever been to Mount Evans, it's summertime, by the way, but the mountains are covered with snow. You're at about 14,000 feet. Well, I don't know exactly what we were doing. We, got, we stopped the car, got out, and of course, 10 and 8 and 10-year-olds are not prepared for cold weather. They don't even have coats on or nothing. And the first thing we know, they're just a couple of specks out on the snow on the side of the mountains. And we panic because we know what the weather's like in the mountains. It can change instantaneously. The wind can come up and you can't see and we were literally in tears. Didn't know what to do, but then a car pulled up beside us, and here we got out some young people, and they were obviously hikers. I mean, they had the equipment. They had everything they needed. They are professionals. So we went to them and said, can you go get those two and tell them to get back here? For 20 years, they've never forgotten it. But on the Sea of Galilee, they're out on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are with Jesus in a boat. And all of a sudden, one of those weather changes comes. And it comes up. And the, evidently, the waves were large. And the wind was blowing. And in fact, the disciples were so afraid, they thought they were going to drown. Look. One day Jesus and his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a squall came down on the lake. 
so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. And the disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this that commands the wind and the water? And they obey him. You see, they had seen Jesus heal the sick. They had seen him do other kinds of miracles. But now, all of a sudden, they realize he has authority over the elements as well. The wind and the waves. Or take another example. Out of Luke, fourth chapter, beginning with verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum. Now, you know, I, I get amazed. Uh, in our sense of directional system and the way we do maps today, down is south, right? Well, Capernaum is up north. Jerusalem is south, okay? But anyway, they went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee. And on the Sabbath, he taught the people. And they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. And he cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet! And Jesus said sternly, Come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. And all the people were amazed and said to one another, What words these are with the authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. Wow. He demonstrated his authority even over the spirits. Matthew records, as I said, one of Jesus' teaching experiences in the temple. And uh, listen to what it says. He entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked him. And who gave you this authority? And Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why don't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of all the people, we're afraid of all the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
There have always been those who question Jesus' authority. There have always been those who didn't understand what the incarnation really meant. They didn't understand the whole idea that Jesus changes everything. But throughout the New Testament, we see incredible examples of Jesus' power and authority. Take the Sermon on the Mount as an example and the crowd's reaction in Matthew 7. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And he had authority over life and death. Oh, yeah. Late in his ministry, he's on his way towards Jerusalem. His mind is set towards the crucifixion. But he stops, stands outside the tomb of Lazarus, who'd been there four days, and he says, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth. He demonstrates his authority even over life and death. Well, you probably remember the story from Mark 2 and from Luke chapter 5. It's one that probably we've had at the children's sermon, Teresa, at some time or another. Boy, it's a good story. It's a great story. It's the story where Jesus is teaching in a house. And the crowds were large at this point in his ministry. And we have the story of these four guys. They, they had a friend, and he was paralyzed. And they wanted to get him to Jesus because they knew Jesus could heal him. And isn't that a great story? They get up on the roof and they cut a hole in the roof and they drop him down. I love it. All the action. Man, this has all kinds of wonderful parts to it. And once again, we tend to get caught up in all these really good things. But I happen to believe that what happened at the very end is the most significant of all of this story. When Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. Wow! The crucifixion hadn't occurred yet. Your sins are forgiven. In the incarnation, divinity became flesh. God dwelt among us. And yes, we'll talk about it next week, the sacrificial system and how Jesus changed that whole system. But for now, let us never forget that only Jesus can forgive 
sins. He's been doing it since his ministry on earth and during the literally thousands of years since, and he's still doing it today.